when a rival cocaine dealer threatened the Bronx territory of Ephraim Laura and his three co-defendants. They allegedly conspired to kill him. Subsequently, a federal grand jury indicted the four defendants for aiding and abetting the use and carry of a firearm in relation to a drug trafficking crime which caused a person's death. In a superseding three-count indictment, Laura was charged with an additional drug trafficking conspiracy charge, as well as a charge for intentionally causing someone's death in order to further that conspiracy. The jury found Laura guilty on all three counts, and the district court sentenced him to five years in prison for the first count, to run consecutively rather than concurrently with a 25-year sentence on the second two counts. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed. The question before the Supreme Court in this case was whether a federal criminal sentencing law that bars concurrent sentences applies to Laura's particular conviction. The court held that it did not, and therefore Laura's sentence can run either concurrently with or consecutively to another sentence. And now, the June 16, 2023 opinion of a unanimous Supreme Court in Laura v. United States. Justice Jackson delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. When a federal court imposes multiple prison sentences, it can typically choose whether to run the sentences concurrently or consecutively. An exception exists in subsection C of section 924, which provides that no term of imprisonment imposed on a person under this subsection shall run concurrently with any other term of imprisonment. In this case, we consider whether Section 924C's bar on concurrent sentences extends to a sentence imposed under a different subsection, Section 924J. We hold that it does not. A sentence for a Section 924J conviction, therefore, can run either concurrently with or consecutively to another sentence. Part 1. In 2002, members of a drug dealing group from the Bronx assassinated a rival drug dealer. The government accused petitioner Ephraim Laura of being one of the group's leaders and acting as a scout during the fatal shooting. After a jury trial, Laura was convicted of aiding and abetting a violation of Section 924J1, which penalizes a person who, in the course of a violation of subsection C, causes the death of a person through the use of a firearm, where the killing is a murder. Laura was also convicted of conspiring to distribute drugs in violation of 21 U.S.C. Sections 841 and 846. 
At sentencing, the district court rejected two of Laura's arguments about his Section 924J conviction. Most pertinent here, Laura argued that the district court had discretion to run the Section 924J sentence concurrently with the drug distribution conspiracy sentence. The district court held it lacked such discretion. Applying circuit precedent, it held that Section 924C1D2's bar on concurrent sentences governs Section 924J sentences such that Laura's two sentences had to run consecutively. Laura also argued that a Section 924J conviction is not subject to the mandatory minimum sentences specified in Section 924C. Disagreeing once again, the district court applied the five-year mandatory minimum under Section 924C1A to Laura's sentencing calculation. The district court ultimately sentenced Laura to 30 years of imprisonment, 25 years on the drug distribution conspiracy count, and consecutively five years on the Section 924J count. Laura also received five years of supervised release. The Court of Appeals affirmed, adhering to its precedent barring Section 924J sentences from running concurrently with other sentences. That decision reinforced a conflict among the Courts of Appeals over whether Section 924C1D2's concurrent sentence bar governs Section 924J sentences. We granted certiorari to resolve the conflict. Part 2. Section A. This case concerns federal laws that criminalize the use, carrying, and possession of firearms in connection with certain crimes. The relevant parts of that scheme are spread across two subsections of 18 U.S.C. Section 924. Subsection C lays out a set of offenses and their corresponding penalties. It begins by making it a crime either to use or carry a firearm during and in relation to any crime of violence or drug trafficking crime or to possess a firearm in furtherance of any such crime. The provision then prescribes a term of imprisonment for that offense, a minimum of five years. Other more serious offense elements and terms of imprisonment follow within subsection C. If the firearm is brandished, the term of imprisonment jumps to a minimum of seven years, if the firearm is discharged, the minimum becomes 10 years. If the firearm is a machine gun, 30 years, and so on. Subsection C also provides that no term of imprisonment imposed on a person under this subsection shall run concurrently with any other term of imprisonment imposed on the person. In other words, the sentence must run consecutively, not concurrently, in relation to other sentences. This concurrent sentence bar or consecutive sentence mandate is at issue in this case. 
subsection J was added decades after subsection C and its consecutive sentence mandate. Subsection J likewise lays out offense elements and corresponding penalties. It provides, A person who, in the course of a violation of subsection C, causes the death of a person through the use of a firearm, shall, 1. If the killing is a murder, as defined in section 1111, be punished by death or imprisonment for any term of years or for life, and 2. If the killing is manslaughter, as defined in section 1112, be punished as provided in that section. Subsection J contains no consecutive sentence mandate. Section B. Here, Laurel was convicted of a subsection J offense. The parties dispute whether the sentence for that offense can run concurrently with another sentence, or whether it is subject to subsection C's consecutive sentence mandate. We hold the former. Subsection C's consecutive sentence requirement applies to a term of imprisonment imposed on a person under this subsection, i.e., subsection C. By those plain terms, Congress applied the consecutive sentence mandate only to terms of imprisonment imposed under that subsection, and Congress put subsection J in a different subsection of the statute. Drilling into the details confirms that straightforward reasoning. To begin, subsection C sets forth a host of offenses and the corresponding terms of imprisonment to be imposed. Those are the terms of imprisonment imposed under this subsection that the consecutive sentence mandate references. That is, by echoing the phrase term of imprisonment and referring inwards to this subsection, section 924C1D2 points to the terms of imprisonment prescribed within subsection C. A sentence imposed under subsection J does not qualify. To state the obvious again, subsection J is not located within subsection C. Nor does subsection J call for imposing any sentence from subsection C. Instead, subsection J provides its own set of penalties. To be sure, subsection J references subsection C, but it does so only with respect to offense elements, not penalties. Subsection J's offense elements include causing death in the course of a violation of subsection C. And to define that phrase, one must consult subsection C's offense elements, i.e., what it takes to violate that subsection. But that is where subsection C's role in subsection J stops. One need not consult subsection C's sentences in order to sentence a subsection J defendant. Thus, a defendant who is sentenced under subsection J does not receive a term of imprisonment imposed under subsection C. Consequently, section 924C1D2's consecutive sentence mandate 
does not apply. Part 3 Section A The government tries to deflect this conclusion by blending subsections C and J together. It claims that Congress incorporated Section 924C as a whole into Section 924J. Under that view, a subsection J defendant faces subsection J's penalties plus subsection C's penalties, including subsection C's mandatory minimum sentences and its consecutive sentence mandate. The actual statute bears no resemblance to the government's vision. Subsection J nowhere mentions, let alone incorporates, subsection C's penalties. Instead, as just explained, subsection J's only reference to subsection C is limited to offense elements. Moreover, a sentencing court cannot follow both subsection C and subsection J as written. Combining the two subsections would set them on a collision course. Indeed, in some cases, the maximum sentence would be lower than the minimum sentence. Take voluntary manslaughter using a machine gun in the course of a subsection C1 violation, for example. Subsection C, because of the machine gun, would command that the person shall be sentenced to a term of imprisonment of not less than 30 years. Subsection J, because of the voluntary manslaughter, would command that per section 1112, the person shall be imprisoned not more than 15 years. To fashion a sentence not less than 30 years and not more than 15 years, that is, to obey both subsections C and J, is impossible. And Congress has not required that unachievable result. Instead, subsection J supplies its own comprehensive set of penalties that apply instead of subsection C's. To avert potential conflict between subsections C and J, the government tries to knit the two provisions together in a very particular way. In the government's view, a court sentencing a subsection J defendant should jump to subsection C apply the penalties listed there, then jump back to subsection J and add the penalties listed there, then jump back to subsection C and impose the consecutive sentence mandate listed in that subsection. But nothing in subsection J calls for such calisthenics. To assuage that concern, the government maintains that Congress has done this elsewhere, it says that another provision, section 924C5, operates this way. Even if section 924C5 does work in that fashion, which we do not decide, the government's argument only underscores that subsection J does not. Under section 924C5, a person who, inter alia, uses armor-piercing ammunition during and in relation to a crime of violence or drug-trafficking crime, shall a. be sentenced to a term of imprisonment of not less than 15 years, 
and b. if death results from the use of such ammunition, 1. if the killing is murder as defined in section 1111, be punished by death or sentenced to a term of imprisonment for any term of years or for life, and 2. if the killing is manslaughter as defined in section 1112, be punished as provided in section 1112. According to the government, section 924c5 adds two penalties together when death results. Someone convicted of murder resulting from the use of such ammunition faces a 15-year mandatory minimum sentence under section 924c5a, plus an additional sentence for murder under section 924c5 B1. But subsection J is cast from a different mold. Section 924C5 groups the two penalties together and joins them with the word and. In contrast, several unrelated subsections separate subsections C and J structurally, and nothing joins their penalties textually. So even if those features of section 924C5 make it operate as the government contends, those aspects of section 924C5 are missing from subsection J. In the government's own telling, then, section 924C5 shows how Congress could have constructed penalties that might ultimately add together. Yet Congress did not implement that design in subsection J. Equally unavailing is the government's invocation of double jeopardy principles. According to the government's brief, section 924J amounts to the same offense as section 924C for purposes of the double jeopardy clause, so a defendant may be punished for either a section 924C offense or a section 924J offense, but not both. The government argues that this conception of double jeopardy confirms subsection J incorporates all of subsection C. We express no position on the government's view of double jeopardy, because even assuming it, arguendo, the government's view does not refute our holding on the question presented. The government says someone cannot receive both subsection C and subsection J sentences for the same conduct. But that aligns with our conclusion here. If a defendant receives a sentence under subsection J, he does not receive a sentence imposed under subsection C. That would trigger the consecutive sentence mandate. Accordingly, the government's view of double jeopardy can easily be squared with our view that subsection J neither incorporates subsection C's penalties nor triggers the consecutive sentence mandate. Section B. The government protests that it is implausible that Congress imposed the harsh consecutive sentence mandate under subsection C, but not subsection J, which covers more serious offense conduct. Yet that result is consistent with other design features of the statute. Congress plainly chose a different approach to punishment in subsection J than in subsection C. 
subsection C, first enacted in 1968, is full of mandatory penalties. It contains mandatory minimum years of imprisonment and mandatory consecutive sentences. In fact, when subsection J was enacted in 1994, subsection C specified not just mandatory minimums, but exact mandatory terms of imprisonment. Subsection J, by contrast, generally eschews mandatory penalties in favor of sentencing flexibility. Unlike subsection C, subsection J contains no mandatory minimums. Even for murder, subsection J expressly permits a sentence of any term of years. This follows the same pattern as several other provisions enacted alongside subsection J in the Federal Death Penalty Act of 1994. In those provisions, as in section 924J1, Congress authorized the death penalty, but also a flexible range of lesser sentences for any term of years, with no mandatory minimum or consecutive sentence mandate. In the same law, Congress also enacted a provision allowing judges to go before the otherwise mandatory minimum sentence in certain cases. Given those choices to favor sentencing flexibility over mandatory penalties, it is not implausible, as the government asserts, that subsection J permits flexibility to choose between concurrent and consecutive sentences. Nor is that flexibility incompatible with the seriousness of subsection J offenses. Subsection J merely reflects the seriousness of the offense using a different approach than subsection C's mandatory penalties. For murder, subsection J authorizes the harshest maximum penalty possible, death. And for manslaughter, subsection J imposes the same harsh punishment that the Federal Criminal Code prescribes for other manslaughters. Congress could certainly have designed the penalty scheme at issue here differently. It could have mandated harsher punishment under subsection J than under subsection C. It could have added a consecutive sentence mandate to subsection J. It could have written subsection C's consecutive sentence mandate more broadly. It could have placed subsection J within subsection C. But Congress did not do any of these things, and we must implement the design Congress chose. Because the consecutive sentence mandate in section 924C1D2 does not govern section 924J sentences, the district court had discretion to impose Laura's section 924J sentence concurrently with another sentence. We vacate the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. <laughs> We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.